G'day everyone, welcome to this week's episode with Brian Watson. Um, lots of you uh, I know are thinking about exits at some point in time, you know, it could be three years or five years or 10 years or you know, at some point in the future, you know, you'd like to have the option um, to exit your business. So I really wanted to bring um, someone that I really consider has had an excellent um, exit, a really professionally run, great, um, great outcome uh, for themselves and for their team and their business. His name is Brian Watson. Uh, he built a business in South Africa called IDS, or he he came in with private equity um, as the CEO. They joined forces, and over the course of um, uh, over the course of years, they had a ten times money um, exit, which is a pretty uh, impressive return. Uh, and so this episode is really about unpacking that exit and all the things that really made it happen. And he's got some very unique philosophies around how he builds team how he thinks about recruiting talent. I know that you know securing talent's a really big challenge for many of you right now. And so the way that had Brian has thought about finding talent when you can't afford it and how to actually create an environment that helps you sort of get out of the way and give them some, some room and some rope uh, to actually really astound you and surprise you with uh, what they can do. I think he's got some really valuable insights into um, how to do that as a leader, which I think you'll really enjoy. So Enjoy today's episode uh, with Brian Watson and unpacking uh, his ingredients to a successful exit. Welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. G'day everyone and welcome to the Scale-Ups podcast where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fulfill the potential of their businesses, make bigger decisions with greater confidence and maximize the value and impact they can have in the world. I am your host, Sean Steele, uh, and joining me today is my very special guest, uh, Brian Watson. How are you, Brian? Very good yourself, Sean. Good to see you. Right, good to see your smiling face. Um, for those who don't know who Brian Watson is, you are a seasoned uh, tech CEO who's had a successful recent exit and are now rapidly scaling a new um, startup. And, and for the audience's benefit, if, we, if they wonder why we laugh and carry on um, in this episode, it's because you and I know each other very well, uh, having, yeah. met in, um, having met in YPO uh, about five, oh, it must be about five years ago. So for those for those who've been listening for a while, you know all about YPO. For those who have not, um, Young Presidents Organization, it's the largest global network of CEOs around the world, about 30,000 plus organized into chapters. And then inside the chapters, you have forums and the forums are groups of six to eight people, um, all, all CEOs and founders who become super tight, supporting each other, challenging each other to grow. And, um, and that's where you and I met uh, about five years ago. So we've been, uh, we've been friends outside that uh, ever since. And I've been keen to interview you for some time, but the timing hasn't been right uh, for us. So, um, so maybe just uh, allow me to give a quick little intro. You, you grew up um, primarily in South Africa, degrees in science and business and law. Your parents were teachers um, without, uh, this, maybe this is too, too harsh a statement, I'm, I'm going to say without an entrepreneurial bone uh in their body um and you ended up working in commercial property law 
um, environmental consulting and strategy consulting, and then wound yourself into this job as a CEO um, alongside a private equity owner to steward the transformation of a business called IDS, which was, you know, a team that you built who successfully transformed this electronics security manufacturer into an emerging market smart home leader and eventually had an exit to a NASDAQ listed company called Asa Abloy, uh, followed by a sabbatical year where you traveled around the world with your, um, your young family uh, uh, back then. And then you've since founded Ovita where um, Ovita that you've co-founded with Alex uh, and you guys are harnessing technology to transform how humans master the soft skills that underpin 85% of our success at work. So that's quite a big uh, story. Did it feel accurate? Did I get anything wrong? Yeah, you've got that pretty spot on. I guess um, the, one of the things that did happen in, in thinking about this, my dad, who's a teacher his whole life at the age of probably 50, um, left a job as a headmaster and went and founded a, a new school. And so uh, a lifetime of teaching uh, turned into an entrepreneurial opportunity late in life. Uh, and. Right. Uh, so I, I think uh, becoming an entrepreneur when the gray hairs are starting to show might be something that runs in the family. <laughs> there you go. It is genetic. We didn't, we didn't realize. <laughs> well, you know, my first question for you, Brian, is why on earth did a bunch of private equity guys take a bet on a unknown CEO who, you know, they're about to get some deal done uh, on IDS and thought Brian Watson would be a good, uh, a good bet to take some young upstart to, to be the CEO of this business. How did that, how did that occur? Um, yeah, I've asked myself and them that question a few times because uh, looking back, it, it seems a bold choice by them. Um, I had a bit of background in strategy consulting and no operational experience. Um, I was really keen to transition from strategy consulting to operations. Uh, I felt like all the fun started when the strategy consulting ended. We'd look, spend the time looking <laughs> at a business, getting to know it, and then we'd say, okay, here's a strategy, go and do it. I was like, oh, it's about to get real, and now I'm off to the next project. So was looking around yeah. for an opportunity, but um, I think like many things in life, serendipity play, and relationships played a role. Um, I knew some of the guys at the private equity firm, and I think they'd seen me operating before and obviously had uh, an irrational amount of faith in me. Uh, and um, <laughs> I happened to sit next to one of them at a wedding, and we had a good chat and said, hey, let's catch up on the week and see if this goes somewhere, and it did. And I think um, th those two things have played a role throughout my life, and I think they're often underestimated in careers. Um, the relationships you build with people uh, and just serendipity, getting out there and sitting next to the right guy at the right wedding and there's an opportunity. Yeah, 100%. I love that. You, um, this IDS journey always really fascinated me for a few reasons and primarily because of how you think. I always found that you think quite differently uh, about leadership and in a way about the way that you build team and you have some sort of strong philosophies there. So I'm wondering if you could Maybe just share with the audience just a um, quick overview of the metrics, you know, like what, what, just to give them a sense of what, what an IDS look like at the start and at the finish, like to give a sense of the sort of scale of that journey. And then I'm really keen for you to unpack some of the key lessons um, from the success of that exit. And now that you've got the benefit of hindsight, you can see all the mistakes you made and, um, and maybe some of the things that you got right. Yeah, I think the hindsight, often the, the mistakes are crystal clear in hindsight sometimes, aren't they? Um... <laughs> Uh, so when we bought IDS, it was a, a successful but relatively small electronics manufacturer in South Africa. So um, what happened during apartheid in South Africa is that um, it had to develop a lot of its own technology, and a lot of that was sort of military-based um, because, because of sanctions. They couldn't get access to a lot of imported technology. And a lot of little 
entrepreneurial businesses spun out of that complex, probably a little similar to what Israel looks like in terms of the startup culture. Um, and this business was small. It served mostly the South African markets and a few adjacent countries in Africa. Um, and we thought there was a lot of potential in the business when we bought it. Uh, we thought there was some operational efficiencies to be gained and some market growth opportunities. And it was riding on the back of some really good sort of mega trends in Africa um, around urbanization, young population rapidly growing and some security concerns. Um, when we got in, the business was pretty heavy with people. Um, and as happens with many small businesses that grown organically and some of the people who joined the business maybe weren't the right people for the longer term journey. So they, someone who joins a business when there's eight staff might not be the right person when it's 250, which is the size we bought the business at. Um, right. And so... Yeah, it was at 250 when you bought it? Yeah, it was at 250 when we bought it, yeah. 200 when we sold it, but we grew revenue about eight times over that period. Wow. So, <laughs> um, you know, if, if efficiency, um, changing markets, changing products uh, allowed us to squeeze more and more operation out of the business, which is a key part of the growth. Uh, mm. We, we sold it, we bought it, um, I think, six weeks before the global financial crisis, uh, which smashed the housing market and we sold to the housing market. So I think our first month sales were down 30%, um, first month yeah. of owning the business. Uh, so we had a bit of fun there. That's always uh, a great, that's a great board meeting, that first one. Hey, guess what? <laughs> uh, here's my first management report. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting in here. <laughs> Yeah, and, and as an inexperienced CEO, just trying to get to grips with some really basic operational stuff and some sort of, you know, very basic uh, ERP systems that just had, you know, took me eight hours to run a sales report. Um, mm. Really hard to get a handle on the business. And that, that was a bit of a baptism of fire, um, but also gave us the platform to make some really big changes in the business and, and do some stuff that needed to be done. So uh, one of the lessons, I guess, is never waste a good crisis. Um, mm. th there's always opportunity in crisis. And I think one of the lessons coming out of a country like South Africa, where the, the economy as exciting and interesting as it is, seems sometimes to stumble from one crisis to the next, is um, your superpower becomes managing uncertainty and crisis. And uh, I think we turned that into a, in, rather than complaining about that as a business, we turned that into one of our sort of core operating principles is we will be the best at managing crisis. We will love crisis because we know it puts more heat on our competitors than we do. Then it puts on us yeah. because we're good at it. So, so every time there was mm -hmm. a crisis, we kind of rubbed our hands together and said, here comes another 10% market share growth because um, we're going to do nice. it better. Um, yeah, so, so we grew the business around 10 times, uh, sold it for about 10 times money to a NASDAQ-listed company. Um, amazing journey, fantastic journey. Um, and we, I'm, I'm really proud to say that the business has done brilliantly in the sort of three or four years since we sold it. Um, succeeded the forecast and expectations for the buyer. Um, and uh, continues to deliver an amazing service and, and deliver amazing innovation in emerging market, uh, home security and smart home. Uh, and I'm really proud of that continued growth uh, post the sale of the business. Mm. And why, why, why are you proud of it? Um, what does it say to you? Like, what, what, does it, um, what does it make you think? I think it's reflective of the fact that we built a really sustainably strong culture in the business. Mm. Um, the people, in the end, something we said a lot in IDS is a business is just a bunch of people doing stuff. That's all. Everything else is details. Um, and we built a really strong culture in terms of how we thought about the business, how we thought about problems, how we thought about people, how we thought about customers. Um, and I, I think it's one of the things that allowed us to sell the business relatively well is that it was obvious to the buyer that there was a really strong internal culture in the business. And in fact, on their internal pitch, 
to their board. That was point number one, it's a really strong internal team. Uh, and when I saw mm. that, I was I was ecstatic because I felt like they got it. Mm. Uh, and I was really confident that barring a crisis, that culture would continue to deliver. Uh, and it has. Uh, and um, that's without doubt my proudest moment at IDS is, is the way that teams continue to deliver over the years. Mm. So speaking of, um, yeah, we, we were talking offline about talent and how you, you know, how you build talent and how you think about attracting talent because. You know, one of the one of the challenges that lots of founders face, um, and probably every founder uh, on the way up, is you, you know people always say you know there's there's absolutely no shortage of everybody saying you know talent's the most important thing. Got to hire the right team. Got to get great people. They need you know you're trying to find people who've been there before so that you can kind of rely on them and all the rest. And that's all great. Um, but in the practicalities of going, yeah, but I can't afford that, or you know, how am I going to afford that, or you know, how, how do I actually kind of make that happen? You have some really interesting thoughts about how you build um, talent when you, how do you attract it in the first place? How do you then keep it, and how do you, um, how do you have them remain engaged as long as possible when you can't afford it? So, how did you think about? Because you would have had, you know, you walk into a business that's that's just about that's just been hammered by a crisis and so you've got this opportunity to kind of rebuild your team talk talk to me through the key things that you learned in the way that you built your team and the way that you tried to do that yeah there was it was really fascinating sean um one of the first things that struck us when we got into the business is it because of the way south africa's tariffs and international trade is structured the business was totally exposed to international competition and in fact um sort of negatively impacted relative to our competitors they were mostly um, US, Canadian, European, Israeli, um, and almost all of them had manufacturing in China. So sort of um, in, big, in big centers of, of technical competence with the manufacturing coming cheaply out of China. Um, and we looked at that and said, okay, how do, to compete long-term, the only way we're going to beat these people long-term is A, be really good at knowing our local markets and our customers in the emerging market, which they probably aren't concentrating that hard on. And secondly, we're going to have to have the best people. We just have to have amazing people here. Um, and we were in an, in an industrial area in a sort of unfashionable part of town in an unfashionable city in South Africa in a third world market. And so you look around and think, well, how do I get the best and brightest into this business? Um, and we were also relatively small. We didn't have a huge amount of money to throw at it. You know, th those in the early years, those recruits... Which, sorry, recruit, by the way, yeah. that is a, it's a huge... That in and of itself is an un... Uh, I don't know what the right word is. People who haven't had to market uh, trying to attract great people to a business that's in a crap area, to be frank. Like it's a rubbish sort of working environment. It's a terrible building. It's in the middle of nowhere. People are like, why would I work there? I had a business like that in the last uh, six or seven years. And I reckon we went through at least three at least three general managers during my tenure because just trying to find someone who was attracted to that sector, that kind of thing, that, but particularly going out to that work environment every day. And it was a pretty soul-sucking kind of an environment, like a big old warehouse, and it was just yeah. loud and noisy and not attractive. And their alternatives, these are professional people, right? Their alternatives are some pretty nice offices in the city somewhere working for some, you know, some beautiful locations and it's not easy to attract people to these places. Like, how, to tell me how you how you managed to crack that. Yeah, I think it, it's it's all about um, culture, right? So, so we couldn't offer them the nicest office and working environment in town. Um, 
you know, you had to drive five minutes to a sort of really crummy burger and chips place to get lunch. It, you couldn't go down the road and get a nice coffee. Or it, it really was a, a, a tricky place to work. Um, so it, it was all about culture and opportunity. So we were never going to attract um, someone who was sitting at the corner office at Unilever in the city with a view of the harbor. We just knew we were never going to get that guy. What we could do, though, is we could get really smart, uh, robust, ambitious people who valued the ability to grow and develop in a great team above the immediate benefits of a higher salary or the corner office. So we looked really hard for people who are motivated by um, personal growth, possibly quite early in their career, and we looked for the diamonds in the rough. Um, right. We looked for people who maybe didn't have that massive corporate career behind them, or they didn't have a massive job lined up, but there was something about them that we liked. Uh, and we... And we we recruited hard and heavily and spent a lot of time talking to people. Uh, and in the end, we ended up with a team of people who were, responded really well to autonomy. And I guess a step back is what kind of culture were, were we trying to create that we sold to these people? It was um, massive amounts of autonomy. It's a small business with a lot of ambition. Uh, we're not going to micromanage you. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're going to create opportunities for you. We're going to spend all our time creating opportunities and pointing you in the direction of amazing opportunities and things that can be done. And then we want you to go. We're not going to hold you back. We're not going to bog you down with bureaucracy. Um, we're also going to have an incredibly open and transparent, a radically transparent culture where everyone talks about everything and we all learn across the business. So one of the pitches to a sales guys, you're going to come in, but you're going to learn about the factory. Um, you're going to learn about the product in the back end because we're not siloed uh, and everyone speaks to everyone all the time. So we, we as a senior team, our job, we believed our job was 90% just talking to our teams and our customers. It was constant communication, constantly putting people together, making sure people were learning. Um, and then a huge amount of individual um, uh, sort of independence. So if you wanted to go and surf in the morning and come in at lunchtime, there was no one going to hassle you about that as long as you were performing. And so we allowed people to balance their lifestyle um, with their work. But we asked a lot of them at work in terms of what they delivered, but then we also gave them a huge amount of space to, to determine how they delivered that and when. Um, and as a result, we attracted self-motivated, driven, ambitious, um, creative people who valued the opportunity they had been given and didn't resent the fact that the office wasn't that great or they didn't have the best parking space. Uh, yeah. And it resulted in very little politics because those kind of people are all pulling in one direction. They're too busy to be political or complaining or whining or... Um, getting involved in criticizing the factory because something wasn't right. So that culture, and then that culture builds on itself. So people start saying, this is a great place to work. And then great people find great people, right? So after a while, our best people came through our people. Um, yeah. They told other great people that it was a great place to work. And so I think we ended up with a team that was vastly more competent uh, than we probably had a right to deserve in, in the kind of space we were in. Um, and I'm, I'm immensely proud of the fact that almost that entire senior leadership team has gone on to be CEOs in the four years subsequent to the sale. A lot of them within the SA Avoid group. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the talent. What about, one, the, yeah. what, what about how you, so when you've got a situation where you're creating a hell of a lot of in, um, independence and, you know, people can kind of go, oh, yeah, 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 I try to give everyone independence. Like you were doing this in a quite a radical uh, way. This was like, Super high expectations, lots of rope in between, um, and a highly transparent sort of feedback kind of culture. How did you 
get them to think about um, sort of mistakes and innovation and, and learning? Like how, how did that sort of end up in that culture? Because I can imagine if you've got a circumstance where you get a lot of people who are feeling like they've got a lot of independence, probably a lot of things that are going to be falling over and not, not working along the way as well. Mm, yeah, I think what you have to put with that is a sort of a zero blame culture, which is in order for this business to achieve what it needs to achieve, I, I, well, I guess part of it is my um, very deep awareness of my limitations, um, which I think is something that I probably overdo all the time. I, I, I'm, I'm a hyper aware of the things I'm not good at and where I'm weak. Um, and I was deeply aware that there was a lot of things in the business that I just didn't know how to do that well. But I knew that there were people who could do them better than me. And so I was very focused on empowering people to go off and do it. But then to have the bravery to be different. And so we, can, we, we tried a few times early on in the business to be a little different. But there's, there's, a real, there's a real pull to follow convention in a business. Um, the risks of being told you were wrong if you followed the conventional path are much lower than if you followed the um, left field path. And so, and, and people, people tend to be risk averse, especially if there's a risk that it's going to come back at them at some point. And so everyone just does what's expected. And if you do what's expected and what everyone else does, you're going to look like everyone else. Uh, and then you've got to wonder how you're going to differentiate in the markets and how you're actually going to outcompete massive international companies with huge resource budgets, you know, with huge R&D budgets. Um, and we knew we needed to have the courage to be different. So part of that is you've got to let your people go. You've got to let them try stuff. You've got to encourage them to try stuff. Um, you've got to call them out when they're not trying stuff. Uh, and then when they fail, you have to treat those failures as, as a success. You have to say, great, we tried something weird and wonderful and crazy and off the wall and it failed. So what did we learn? You know, did we make those, were we negligent in looking at risks? Were we, um, were, did we make stupid errors that could have been avoided? No? Okay, that's fine. Did we make brave errors? Did we go out and try new stuff and learn something? Yes. Brilliant. And then we shared those widely and we celebrated them. And especially as a senior team, we were very aware of um, exposing our own mistakes to the teams. So we, we openly paraded our mistakes and we shared them with each, about each other. So, you know, we'd say, hey, that guy, that senior guy, we all saw him make a mistake. So it's okay. You can make it too. But make good mistakes. Make brave mistakes. Make well thought through mistakes. Make mistakes that have got big upside if you get it right. Don't make silly mistakes. Don't make um, ill-disciplined mistakes. Um, yeah, so, so our culture was very much about taking chances, well thought through chances, and being brave enough to take risks. And, and it takes a while for people to believe you. Because um, mm -hmm. if you say to your team, hey, go and take risks, and then yeah. the first time someone takes a risk, they can see on your face that you're not happy. Um, then yeah. everyone goes back. Most people have never worked in that environment. They haven't experienced an environment where it's great to make mistakes. And so you have to, it takes mm -hmm. a long time. I reckon four years of constant persistence about telling people it's fine to make mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. Parading our own mistakes over and over again, parading our own vulnerabilities and flaws over and over again, having the difficult debates between the senior team in public, letting people see that we disagree um, and that it's great to disagree and that we can disagree strongly and still come to a conclusion and then back each other. So that radical transparency, I think, played a really big role in unlocking the potential of high potential people who suddenly felt emboldened to go and do what they thought might be possible. Mm. Wow. I mean, I've never worked in an environment that has that level of um, sort of, uh, you know, lots of people, of course, talk about innovation and talk about mistakes. But to your point, if you don't have the entire senior leadership team 100% aligned to that, it doesn't, you know, everybody's waiting for that to be cracked, you know, for the kind of the veneer and the, 
um, these promises about hey, everyone's going to be safe and mistakes are good and all the rest. Everyone's just waiting for that that meeting where somebody gets their uh, gets their pride handed to them and shamed in the public meeting, and everyone's like, "Told you, knew that was going to happen." Uh, it's not safe yeah. to mistake, make mistakes here. That's really, I mean, yeah. well done to you. Cause it's really, really difficult to achieve. Um, but the rewards are massive because you end up with a team who are are brave and courageous and aligned and and a brave courageous aligned team just wins every day mm. yeah yeah 100 percent. and so and, and what i love about that as well is where the conventional wisdom is you know you, you need to go and find somebody who has um done the path that you're trying to go down before and you've said well we can't afford those people. We're not going to find those people. Actually, we need to take a bet on some of the ambitious ones. But we need to we need to be like um, I was I was chatting with. Uh, I'm hoping to get her on the podcast um, soon. But a really good friend of mine, uh, Nicola, who said the and I love this. I love this metaphor. Um, if you think about uh, the Winter Olympics and the sport of curling, where you you know you send those huge round. Um, I don't know, metal discs down the ice uh, yes. and you've got two people. The person throwing the, I'm sure it's not called a curl, but the per- the person sending the thing down the ice and the other person who's got the broom in their hand and they are running at like high speed as they run and sweep in front of the, the curl that's moving. And she said, you know, I think leadership is like being the person with the broom. You know, y- your job is to get all the friction out of the way of these performers and give them the space to do that. So actually... They should see you working like crazy, not doing stuff, like getting things out of other people's way. Um, that's your job as a leader. And I love that metaphor. It really sounds like that's kind of how you saw your role um, and your leadership team's role in, um, in getting out of the way for others. Yeah, yeah. So you... what's interesting there also, Sean, so is I had amazing support from the private equity guys who just didn't hassle us for reports. When things went wrong, they just said, talk to us, tell us what's happening. We'll sort it out. And so... And so I had this amazing ability to operate without bureaucracy, um, which is a rare privilege. And I think as a founder, mm-hmm. it's one of the things you can do is you, is you can, as a founder, when you're growing a team, there's a tendency to want to control and put structure on top of people so that you can manage them. Um, and you do, con- you, you do eliminate the risk of, of errors and things going wrong, but you also tend to eliminate the risk of things going right. So if people are operating in too constrained environments, they can't go and do things that are surprisingly good. Or surprisingly mm-hmm. bad, which means you get a middle of the road type kind of operation from your people. And the private equity guys are incredible in backing me and having a very low overhead, very low administration, very low bureaucracy environment, which is a key part of this. There's no point telling your people, go out and do amazing stuff, but we're going to spend two days a, a week on reports and bureaucracy and feedback and paperwork. And you, you have to have the courage to say, yeah, we're going to go without that stuff. And we're going to back ourselves to have such strong communication in the team that that's redundant. That, that, that's, cu- that's it. Covering risk there and all the time we spend covering risk and reducing risk is time we're not spending going for big goals. And you've, as a growing business, you're going to hear lots risk management and all sorts of, you know, paperwork, ISO certifications and all sorts of structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very wary of anything that involves work that doesn't directly benefit a customer immediately. <laughs> um, so, well, yeah. I, as, a, as you were talking, I was just thinking that... Um... You know, I remember Tony Robbins always used to say that you get what you settle for and 
what you're doing, I imagine, by kind of creating all of this stuff, you're essentially managing everybody to your expectations. So to your point, how does anybody surprise you if A, they're scared of failing, B, they're spending all their time defending themselves and, and justifying kind of their existence, as opposed to actually truly being encouraged to go out and, um, okay, maybe not always break stuff, maybe sometimes break stuff, but where, where are you going to get the surprise if you're just managing everybody? And, and that's such an interesting concept because then you are completely limiting that business to going the, the absolute best it can go is how you expect it to go. And it'll probably go yeah. a bit worse than that, but then you're putting the limit yeah. on it. Huh. It's really interesting. Absolutely. And I, I think that flows through, through every aspect of the business in terms of how people understand their risk. How they perceive their 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 how they perceive themselves in their role in your business and whether they see themselves as being agents of change and success in your business, or whether they see themselves as being um, something that a tool that's controlled by you. I think you know Daniel Pink on on um, why people care about their jobs talks about autonomy and mastery. And if you take away people's autonomy, uh, I think they tend to uh, retreat into their shells. And giving people autonomy. Yeah requires you to take the good with the bad. Can you share, Brian, your thoughts on planning for an exit? Because um, I guess sometimes people just hope that an exit, you know, exit options will be there when the time is right and so on. And some people take a much more deliberate approach to planning their exit. I know you are sort of a bit closer to the latter. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how you approached your um, I guess the sort of philosophy around which you guys approached your exit in partnership with the private equity guys and how you felt that optimized um, the outcome. Yeah. And all the decisions it was along the way. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting, actually, Sean, in discussing this with you the other day, a few things popped up, which I don't think I'd really consciously thought of before. Um, one of the things we did in preparing for the exit was we thought really hard about who good buyers for the business would be. And good buyers to us meant A, would prepare to pay a good multiple, uh, and B, would continue to deliver success in the long term. Um, you know, I, I think that when you own a reasonable stake of a business and you spend a, a large portion of your life in it, it, it becomes an emotional connection as well as an intellectual one. Uh, and that long-term success was emotionally important, I think, to me and to the private equity guys as well. And um, I've got to just give huge amounts of credit to them and the way they went through this process. Um, I think they um, they breached almost every perception of private equity that you might have, every negative perception that it, people might have. Um, uh, and I found them consistently stunningly amazing, good human beings and partners. Um, and so the, we thought very carefully about who a good buyer would be. Uh, and we intentionally structured the business in the last couple of the years to look and not just look, but also be what would be valuable to a buyer like that. And we identified large international technology businesses who saw significant opportunity in the, in the demographic boom happening in Africa. And there's a significant growth in Africa that I think is often, because it's coming off a low base, is often underestimated in the West. Um, so the companies that we knew wanted to get involved in the African market, and we, we needed to provide them a solid footprint across Africa, firstly. Secondly, we were very aware that people, first world com um, companies trying to get their products into emerging markets. Um, had very limited mechanisms to get security products in. And so we went for a smart home approach, which created a smart home base, which was emerging market relevant. And off that base, you could sell ancillary products, smart door locks and those kinds of products. Um, 
So we created a very solid route into a very rapidly growing market for international companies. We had seven or eight in mind, uh, and we built it to look and operate the way they would need it to operate, and then we went to them. Uh, we also built relationships with those businesses for multiple years leading up to our exit. Um, and so when we started talking to them, they knew us, they trusted us, uh, they knew about the business. And so it wasn't a sort of cold call and a prospectus. It was a, mm. hey, it's come time to sell, we need to chat. Yeah. Uh, and I think that made a huge difference to the sale process. That We didn't have to establish trust for the first time. We didn't have to establish credibility. Um, and um, yeah, I think that smoothed the process. Mm. Yeah, I've, I think... Um... I think it is such an overlooked, uh, you know, I know the conversation that I have with almost every client um, uh, that in their early stages is this conversation around, you know, if the, if the, if a sale to a strategic buyer rather than a financial buyer makes sense for them and if, they, and if even a full sale makes sense as an exit, full stop. Um, but that dialogue around who are the likely buyers and how early can we just start having a conversation? How early can we get on that radar? Because it may be that there's some form of partnership that can be, you know, trialed and tested, you know, but it's that, that relationship has to build. You've got a whole, um, you've got trust that you need to build up and it absolutely smooths. If you think about it, if you're on the strategic buyer side, what's one of the things that really reduces your risk profile in your business? It's actually knowing the people, having seen how the people performed over time yeah. versus their expectations, how they've dealt with crisis, all this stuff, which you get to see over time when you've got a relationship, which you don't get to see if you don't have a relationship. Yeah. I think it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I think, Sean, what played a really big role is the same transparency we try to apply internally, we tended to apply externally. Um, so the transparency extended for us to metrics, to financial metrics. So we were, we were really hard on getting our senior team, especially absolute transparency on the business financially. Um, and our transparency went very deep into the business. Um, so people a long way removed from the sort of executive C-suite understood the impact of their actions on the financials of the business and why it mattered uh, and were therefore able to make good decisions in the absence of a senior person telling them, you know, you can do it within this range or within that range. Or, um, and so the principle was push decision-making as far from the center as you can, as close to the customer and to the factory floor as you can. To do that, you have to spread information as far out from the center as you can. Um, and that requires trust. Because people get information that can be used competitively against you. And we had some instances where people abused information. Um, but the net benefit way outweighs the risks. And we had the same approach to buyers and potential strategic partners. Um, we were consistently more transparent than they expected us to be um, about what was going on inside the business, what we were developing, what our financials looked like even. Uh, and that transparency brings with it risks that people could come and compete with you. My argument was always, if knowing one or two financial metrics from our business help someone come and beat us, then we've got a very tenuous competitive advantage. Our competitive <laughs> advantage has to be deeper mm. than someone with a look at our EBITDA margin can come and compete with us. That just can't be, if that's what you're relying on, you're in serious trouble as a business. Yeah. Um, and the second one was once, if you're transparent with people and they can see you being consistently transparent, then when you do tell them something down the track, they trust you because you've been transparent. Uh, and I think that played a really big role in our, in our exits. You know, we had, two consecutive due diligences by international listed businesses, one from Italy, one from Sweden. Uh, and they sent teams of lawyers from London and the US. And, and the, the, the feedback we got at the end of those due diligences was, it's exactly what you told us. There's nothing that you didn't tell us up front. And we're a little surprised and concerned that we can't find anything that you haven't told us. <laughs> um, and so I think 
for me, that process of, of establishing trust over a long period of time by being transparent and consistent um, is a hugely important driver of value in a buyer's mind when they're buying. It takes away a lot of the risk from them in terms of, yeah. is there something here that I'm missing? Yeah. Uh, and we had the same, we had the same uh, rule with our board. It was absolute transparency on bad news. When there was bad news in the business, they knew within 30 seconds. I was on the phone. This is what's gone wrong. This is what's happened. This is why. This is what we messed up. This is what we're going to do to fix it. And so when your board hear instantly from you that there's a problem, then they stop asking you questions all the time because they know you're going to tell mm-hmm. them. They don't have to dig. Mm-hmm. Same with buyers and same with our staff internally. They didn't have to think, wonder if there was a, if there was a subtle underlying agenda because it was just open. This is what we tried mm-hmm. to do. Uh, and I... Uh, that transparency has risks and some people really don't like it and it doesn't fly in some environments. But for me, it's simplified the matter of building trust massively and trust is central to achieving anything great in a business. Couldn't agree more. Um, I've got one last question for you, just on the exit that you were able to achieve. Because uh, one of the things that we talked about a bit offline was alignment of incentives, you know, because very often founders are thinking about how do I, what is the structure that I'm going to use to help align with my top team, the people that I feel like I can have the, can, can contribute the most to the outcome. What's the best way to align them uh, from an incentive perspective? How, how, you know, within, with the, within whatever you can share, um, how did you approach incentives philosophically? Yeah, I think it, it, it was a transparency thing. Um, if you set transparency as a core principle, you say we're going to be transparent. And if these people are going to be running our factory and making deals with our customers and managing our people, um, we have to be able to trust them with absolutely everything in the business, which means at all core financial information, um, everything must be seen quite deep into the business. Um, and so we, we were amazingly transparent with people. But then once you're transparent, um, you're exposed to, um, what would the word be? If, if people can see what you're doing, they can see inconsistencies and they can see, for example, if you're taking way more money off the table, then it's reasonable. Or, so yeah. so that, also, that holds you accountable for your behavior. Yeah. And what we then did is we aligned the incentives from me as the sort of CEO with a reasonably large stake in the business through the rest of the management team with transparency. We knew what we were. We, we knew all knew what we were earning. We all knew what we were going to take out the business um, if we sold. And those incentives were absolutely aligned. So the senior team of sort of six or seven people were absolutely one hundred percent aligned on the exit with me and with the private equity holders. And so as we built towards the exit, we didn't have people starting to wonder if maybe it was better if they didn't sell the business or if we sold to that person, not this person. Because a good buyer for the private equity was a good good buyer for me and was a good buyer for my team. For all of you, yeah. Um, and so what that did is it took away politics and, and whispers and um, all of, as soon as money comes on, you know, they always say when there's money on the table, people change. Uh, and we didn't experience that. When the money came on the table, we were all happy together. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the reason was we were very, very careful about being fair and transparent and aligned. And what that meant is I knew with absolute certainty that the whole team were pulling in the same direction with the buyer. Um, so we said to the buyer, speak to anyone in the management team. They'll all tell you the same thing. They'll all communicate the same way. And the reason I know that is not because we prepped them. It's because we all know the same things and we therefore all will tell you the same stuff. Mm. Um, so for me, it was a, you hear a lot of horror stories around exits and teams and how teams perceive it and people get burnt and feel like they didn't get their fair share. And um, 
we totally avoided that through transparency and a really strong view on fairness. And the private equity guys, again, were incredibly generous in how they shared the equity. Yeah. They drove a lot of this. They were very astute in, I think, how they did that. And, you know, the, the money-grabbing private equity guys, you're going to steal the shirt off your back uh, trope. Just yeah. not right at all. They, they were incredible. Yeah. Stuff. These guys sound like they really were um, were really were top shelf uh, when it comes to private equity. Um, Brian, I want to ask you, before we run out of time today, I want to talk to you about um, Ovita. So before we do... Can you summarize for me your biggest lessons? Because you know, not, not everybody gets the privilege of stewarding and the challenge um, of stewarding a business to a 10, time, uh, you know, a 10 times money exit. That's really you know, an incredible journey. And I think people will have heard the uniqueness and the level of courage that you had as a CEO in the way that you built your culture, which is what enabled you to achieve that. Can you summarize for me your biggest takeaways, lessons, your sort of above all else's, if you like, um, uh, for this, this journey, things that made the difference? Yeah, I think um, the first is you'll hear it all the time. You'll never get there without the team. The team are the everything, the most important asset of people. Um, if you truly believe that, then you have to take that all the way to its logical conclusion, which is I will trust these people with everything. I will align with them on everything. And I will show them everything. Uh, and if you find high potential people with lots of ambition and you show them open green fields and say, go get them. I've got your back no matter what. I've got you. But I want you to be brave. Um, I think you would be astonished what a team of people can achieve. Uh, and I was. I was constantly astonished by what our team achieved. Um, from the size of operation we were and the people we were competing against, we just punched way above our weight all the time. And it was down to one thing and one thing alone. And that's the incredible group of people who were doing it. Um, and as a founder, I think, and, and now as a founder in a smaller business, I'm sitting at the other side where I'm not building a team off of an existing base. I'm building a team off mm -hmm. of nothing from the start. Um, I'm just becoming deeply aware again how central it is that the people you get along for the journey are the kind of people you want to be with in three or five years' time. So yeah, people, getting the right people on board, getting the right people on board as early as you can, being prepared to take the risks to give those people responsibility and let go of the reins and let them exceed what you could do is, is the difference, I think, between an average business and a great business. Love it. Love it. Um, okay, so thank you for sharing that. And I just think um, our audience will have really found that valuable because you don't, um, you know, I've talked to lots of different founders, but we don't always get to, pull apart and exit um, and the things that contributed to the exit uh, in that kind of fashion. And, um, and so I really appreciate the, the way you shared that with us. Can you tell me a bit about Ovita, uh, what you're doing? Where's it, where's it going? What's, what's, what's coming in the Brian yeah. journey? So I think as is obvious from my description of um, IDS, I've, I've become over my career fascinated by the people and how they interact and how they operate as a team. Um, if people are everything, individuals are not everything. The way they interact is everything. Uh, and so the soft skills that drive exceptional team performance uh, fascinate. And the amazing thing about soft skills is Google have identified that the most important single skill in their leadership team is coaching, which they define as the ability to listen and to communicate effectively. Um, McKinsey says 85% of our success at work is determined by our soft skills, not our hard skills. Uh, and so if you then go and say, well, how do I develop soft skills at scale? How do I build 
soft skills across a business in a consistent, replicable fashion. There's simply no way to do it. It doesn't exist. Um, senior leaders will spend thousands of dollars an hour on coaching for themselves to try and develop those skills. But below that, typically, you know, the odd workshop, a listening skills workshop, which people typically forget before the, they finish the drive home. Uh, so video is solving that problem. We are using artificial intelligence to help uh, people develop the soft skills that make the real difference at work and at home uh, at scale. And so what this looks like, uh, can you share sort of what, give us a, what's the typical yeah. client or the, the typical sort of case study and how, how this is turning up in the real world? Sure. So we, we've started out in the coaching environment. So coaching, um, executive and life coaches exhibit most of the soft skills, the good ones, most of the soft skills that will drive success in our business. Uh, so we've started out in the executive coaching industry. Uh, we've got a product that's in trial with uh, top universities across uh, Europe and the US. Uh, and we're starting off our first corporates at the moment now. And we are helping develop coaching skills, both in corporates and at co coach training schools. So a coach and their client will record a session. Our artificial intelligence analyzes the session across facial expressions, tone of voice, the actual words that are spoken compares those to models of what good and bad doesn't look like in terms of communication and gives feedback to people post-session. So what we're finding is if I show you some basic metrics on a communication, how much you talked, what your tone of voice was, how much you used absolute language, how many open or closed questions you asked, uh, people radically transform their behavior very quickly because they've had this lens held up and they see mm -hmm. themselves as others see them. And it drives the motivation to improve. And if you then show people a few simple steps to improve, people do it very quickly. The key is, key is lots of sessions, quick feed, feedback, uh, and automated feedback to take the cost out of the human, the human feedback element. And it's interesting that people are much more likely to take feedback from a machine than they are from their spouse or friend mm -hmm. or boss or peer, which uh, <laughs> one of the big lessons here is feedback delivered by a machine that's effective and accurate uh, is much more effective than feedback delivered by a human. Because yeah. we, 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 we don't assume baggage or judgment or, and we have no embarrassment in front of a machine. And yeah, so we're seeing radical uh, transformations. Like, you know, you, Sorry, Sean. When you think about this, um, you know, when you think about what's next, like, you know, I was chatting with my boys who are 17 and 14 in the car the other day and I said, you know, I can guarantee you that when we were 20, we'd, we had absolutely no idea that we were going to be living a life like we do in terms of the way that we use technology today. Like, yeah. you know, the thing that's sitting on my, on my watch, you know, the fact that I can make phone calls and do text messages and I've got all these apps and it's got a heart monitoring and all these other, like, we had absolutely no idea that was coming 20 years ago. I said, well, have a think about the things that you can just see the smatterings of, you know, the starts of today and where do you think um, we'll be in 15 or 20 years uh, for you boys when you're, you know, when you're in your 30s. And uh, the first thing they jumped to was wearables. They're like, you know, well, anything that's wearable now is only going to advance super fast. Like, you know, we, we were chatting about this concept uh, around Ovita and um, the idea that, you know, with your Google Glass, which I'm sure will get way past actually having anything to wear whatsoever. And I'm sure it'll all be sort of embedded in chips and things internally. But the ability for real-time coaching, real-time feedback about how to actually interact better with other humans, which unfortunately seems to be something that's, you know, slowly going in the wrong direction, but um, clearly there's going to be, there's a lot of ways to learn about what actually really works. And for that to turn into a real-time thing to make us more effective in the way that we communicate with anyone at any point in time, I can only imagine is 
is a, a really an interesting part of the future. It is. So I would love to ask you um, lots of questions about about Oveda, but I'm conscious that we're sort of at time today, so that might have to be a follow up podcast. Um, I know you guys are in the process of building team and scaling rapidly, and so I look forward to um, unpacking with you that uh, unpacking that with you further in the future, um, Brian. Any any final thoughts that you would like to leave our audience with um, today? You know, there's a group of founders who are all thinking about you know what they need to do to scale their businesses up. Final thoughts from you. Yeah, I think um, I'd say two things. One is having been had the had the privilege of leading an established business and an established team, and now doing it much more in a smaller team, much more isolated. Um, never ever underestimate the value of having people around you who care about what's going on and who prepare to support you. Um, it's very easy as a leader of a small business to feel isolated and alone, and that's not the way it should be. So. Join, join groups like YPO that can help you. Find groups of peers, speak to people, pull your mates in. Uh, don't do it alone. I think you know, there's a huge focus on mental health at the moment. Uh, and there's an expectation that founders are tough and resilient and uh, you know, almost superhuman. And it's really important mm-hmm. to look after your, your mental health when you're doing this without a group of people sitting in the same office as you, which is where so much of our energy and our drive comes from. Uh, yeah. And the second thing is when building those teams, have the courage to give people to find good people and give them opportunity and they will astound you with what they can achieve beautiful brian watson thank you so much for today um where should people go if they want to follow along with the ovita journey um where, where do they keep up to date ovita.org uh, is the simplest place uh the connections to everything else are there um we are Constantly adding people. We'd love to have people trial the product. Um, so we've got a beta product, which is just busy rolling down. We're moving to a paid phase now. So jump on there for the, for the tail end of the, of the free beta if you're keen. Awesome. Awesome. Folks, I hope you enjoyed the show today. Uh, huge thanks to Brian Watson. Uh, great, uh, just a great unpacking of the IDS journey and really excited to see what you do with uh, Aveda, Brian. Thanks so much for sharing. Uh, folks, if you got value from today, uh, the best thing you can do is tell somebody about it. Um, take a screenshot, send a share to a friend, somebody else that you know who may uh, get value out of today. Um, it, that just really helps us get into the hands of more people and we greatly appreciate it. You've been listening to the scale podcast. I'm your host, Sean Steele, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks, Sean. G'day everyone, just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week.